Welcome to the Anchored in Truth podcast. Anchored in Truth is an online ministry of Safe Harbor Baptist in Georgetown, Kentucky. Visit us online at safeharborbaptist.org. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Psalm chapter 83. Psalm chapter 83 as we read from God's Word together. And this is God's Word. A song, a psalm of Asaph. God, do not keep silent. Do not be deaf, God. Do not be quiet. See how your enemies make an uproar. Those who hate you have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. For they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you, the tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gebal, Ammon and Amalek, Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre. Even Assyria has joined them. They lend support to the sons of Lot. Deal with them as you did with Midian, as you did with Sisera and Jabin at the Kishon River. They were destroyed at Endor. They became manure for the ground. Make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb, and all their tribal leaders like Zeba and Zalmunna, who said, let us seize God's pastures for ourselves. Make them like tumbleweed, my God like straw before the wind. As fire burns a forest, as a flame blazes through the mountains, so pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. Cover their faces with shame, so that they will seek your name, Lord. Let them be put to shame and terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace. May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High over all the earth. Let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Father, God, we lift our praise to you. Lord, we declare in the midst of this world that we stand on you alone. All other ground is sinking sand, and it shakes, and it trembles, and it will consume us. But on you, we can stand. And we stand firm on the hope of the rock of Christ. The reality that you have sent your Son, Father, to us for enduring hope and life that will stand. And you invite us to come to you and to stand on you even now. Lord, it is a blessing. This is a blessing that we don't deserve, and we are overwhelmed by your kindness to us, that you have not left us, that you have not forsaken us, that you have given us a solid rock that we can know, that we can delight in, that we can serve in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we would know that and live that even today. Lord, we want to pray for Vacation Bible School as it begins tonight. 
that the good news of the solid rock of Christ would go forth from this place over the next week and that the children here would know it and come to believe it with all their heart and that they would know that Jesus is the light that they need, that the families that will come and be a part, that will be visiting, that will come and, and see and hear, that they might know it. That we in this church body might remember it as we proclaim it. And that we might minister not out of the hope of our flesh or our own desires, but out of the hope of Christ alone. And that you might see fit to use us for your glory. So Lord, we pray, we lift up Vacation Bible School. We pray that the seeds that will be planted, that you will bear much fruit. In your kindness and mercy. Lord, we pray for other churches in our area. Specifically, we pray for White Sulphur, who is going to be having an outreach as well to kids this week, their kids' camp. And we pray for Pastor CJ and that congregation as they seek to uh, reach some other kids here in Scott County. And we pray that you would be gracious to use their efforts, that more might come to know you and bring praise to your name and might know the hope of Christ. So, Lord, we come to you now hungry, hungry for the food that only you can give, that we so desperately need, so that we might stand and endure and find you in the troubles of this life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Y'all may be seated, and at this time, if any kids would like to go downstairs uh, to your classes, you can follow your teachers out the back doors or you're welcome uh, to stay here uh, and continue worshiping in here with us. As they're making their way out, leave your Bibles open to Psalm 83 as, our, as we work our way through this passage. For those who haven't uh, been here or maybe visiting, uh, we're coming to the end of uh, a month-long series in the book of Psalms. Uh, If you know anything about the book of Psalms, it is really uh, an expression of worship. Each psalm is a a song that uh, the nation of Israel used to sing as a way that they worshipped God and expressed themselves to God in the the various seasons of life that they went through. There's a song for every season. And praise God, we have a God who knows that we have different seasons in life. And he gives us ways to express ourselves to him, to come before him, to cry out in those seasons. Uh, now, many of you all know uh, that recently eight of us uh, from here at Safe Harbor had the, the privilege of being able to go on a mission trip to Staten Island, New York City, a couple weeks ago. It was a great trip. Let me just say, if you've never been on a mission trip, uh, I encourage you to go on one. Uh, make the sacrifice, make the, the effort, you will be encouraged Uh, by spending time with other believers. You'll be challenged in your faith to to step out and and do new things for the sake of of Christ. Uh, But it is an encouragement and a blessing to be able to go on a mission trip. But one day while we were in New York City, we had the the privilege and the opportunity to go to Manhattan and uh, to kind of see the city, immerse ourselves in in the area, and have a little uh, free time. So we were able to make our way to the 9-11 uh, Museum and, and Memorial that remembers uh, September 11th, 2001, what happened that day. Most of you all 
were alive, and probably remember, if you weren't alive, you've probably been taught in history class or heard on or seen a show on, the, on TV or something about what happened that day. But we recall that on that day, Muslim extremists hijacked uh, airplanes. They flew two uh, airplanes into the World Trade Center towers, another plane into the Pentagon, another plane was uh, fortunately uh, diverted and crashed in a field before it could hit something else. But on that day, uh, 3,000 Americans died, at least 6,000 more were injured. And if you recall, if you were around then, you, you remember the days after that and the emotions of those days, right? There was a lot of fear and anxiety about what would happen next. Uh, a lot of uncertainty in life. What, what is our country going to do? What are we going to do? Are they going to attack again? Where is that going to be? And I, I do remember, I was in college at the time, and I, I remember thinking in my own mind, my thoughts went to judgment. God, strike down these people. These evil, wicked people. Bring judgment on them. And I and many others wanted God's justice right then and there. And as I reflected on that, and as I was, I was, as I was reading Psalm 83 this week, we, we see a similar sentiment uh, in some ways in Psalm 83. But we also see that challenged in some ways. And so I ask myself and I ask you, is that kind of thinking right? When somebody does us evil or causes us harm, should it be our impulse, our instinct, to want them to suffer, for God to judge them? Well, Psalm 83, I think, helps us process this, to know what we should ask God for in times of trouble. And that's really what we see, that we can find courage and confidence by knowing what God teaches us to ask for when trouble comes. So what does God want? What does he want us to pray for? How should our prayers be shaped when we face these troubles in life? And let me just say, we should check our own desires, our own heart. Does this, what my, does this define what my life, my actions, my words look like when trouble comes? Or is it something else? So first we see, the first thing God says that we should ask for is for his presence. When trouble comes, ask for his presence. Now in one sense, we know the Bible reveals that God is omnipresent. We serve a God who is over time and space. He is everywhere. He is omnipresent. His spirit covers the earth, the Bible says. And we also know his Holy Spirit lives within every follower of Jesus Christ. And so in that sense, God's spirit is with us wherever we are. God is always present with his people in a unique way. But we don't always experience God's presence to the degree that we would like. His, his presence is there, but the sin in us, the reality of living in a fallen world, can make God seem distant 
or quiet. It's not that God isn't there. It's that something comes between us and God. And sometimes that causes deep struggle and inner turmoil. God seems silent. And maybe some of, some of you all today find yourself in that place. God, why are you silent? I need you to speak clearly and directly to me and this thing. I need it. That's how the psalmist felt in Psalm 83. Let's look at verse 1. God, do not keep silent. Do not be deaf. Or another translation says, hold your peace. Do not be quiet or still. So the psalmist is asking for God to reveal himself, to speak, to act in a clear and distinguishable way. And so the psalmist calls God's attention to why God should act, why he should speak. Look at verse 2. God, see how your enemies make an uproar who, have, who hate you, have acted arrogantly. They devise clever schemes against your people. God, do you see what they're doing against your people? They conspire against your treasured ones. They say, come, let's wipe them out as a nation so that Israel's name will no longer be remembered. And so we see over and over again, God, this is for your name, your people. See this? You, you should act. You should speak. How often we want God to speak when it really doesn't have anything to do about God. It's all about us. And the psalmist is pleading, God, this is for your people who you say you care about. And the psalmist knows what it's like when God is silent in this broken and fallen world. Right? This is us. The psalmist knows what you feel when God seems silent. So he pleads, God, act. And he has a sense of desperation because he knows what he needs most is to know God is there. To know that God cares. That he's not alone. God can do something and change it, change things in a minute. For God to intervene in a real way. Now, when life for us looks bad, when the circumstances look overwhelming, do you seek God's presence at all? The Bible makes clear sometimes God actually puts us in a place where we have to wait on Him. Isaiah 64, 4, from ancient times, no one has heard, no one has listened to, no eye has seen any God except you who acts on behalf of the one who waits for him. I don't think it's an accident that Isaiah says God acts on behalf of the one who waits on him. That's faith. Someone who is willing to wait on God however long it takes and believes God will do something. 
That's faith. Faith isn't, God, give me what I want right now. God calls us to wait on him. And this is hard. And if we're not careful, we can confuse times of waiting and think that God doesn't care. A time of waiting is never meant to be a time where we become hopeless. For those of us with faith, if God is withholding an answer and putting us in this place of waiting, it's often an expression of his love for us. This is counterintuitive. It's an expression of his love for us that he would make us wait. Why? Because in that place, we have nowhere else to turn but to him. That we might actually take the time to draw closer, to look on who God is. Because we know we have to. He doesn't leave us wondering where to turn. He has already revealed who he is and where we need to turn. He's shown us who he is. He has spoken to us and revealed his promises, his character, his glory, his plans. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3, long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets and at different times and in different ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him heir of all things, and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. God has already shown us who he is. He has sent Jesus so that we can see clearly who he is. That he does care. That he does love us. And that he is glorious and good and holy and perfect and merciful. And yet we look away. And times of waiting cause us to look on this glorious God and say, you are all I need, God. I have forgotten that. I need you. Jesus' death on the cross proved God cares for your good. What else does he need to do? to prove that to you. And he died to offer you forgiveness and eternal life if you would repent of your sin and follow him. And he will not leave you. His perfect life, his resurrection, proves that God is able to raise you to new life from where you are in the death, in the grave of your life. The hopelessness and the despair. He's working for your good even now, if you are in him. Do you believe that? Do you believe that in spite of the things that are going on in your life? That throw at you and say, don't believe that? How can this ever be good? God is working for your good if you are in him. And he will raise you to new life. And his presence is with you to sustain you. We can believe Hebrews 13, 5, that we can be content with what we have because he has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Contentment is not tied to any circumstances of our life. It's con contentment is tied to knowing 
that he will never leave us or forsake us. And that is enough. So today calls us to wait in his presence, remembering that. Looking to him in prayer, reminding ourselves, immersing ourselves in this character of this God who will not leave us. Who has already revealed himself to be that that God in his word through his son. And as we live his way, live life his way, that he is working for our good. So a time of God being silent or still is a time for seeking the Lord. So ask for God's presence. Secondly, God wants us to ask for his power. Ask for his power. This psalm is known as an imprecatory psalm. That's your theological word for the day. Imprecatory psalm. What does that mean? It's a psalm, essentially, that asks God to curse or destroy the enemies. It's what we see here in this psalm. Right? The psalmist is calling for God's power to come down. God, do you see what these enemies are doing to your people? Strike them down. Verse 5, for they have conspired with one mind. They form an alliance against you. And so the, the psalmist is throwing out all the sin and this evil around him and how it's opposition to God, not just to him. And so we, we need to recognize this, right? That any sin that's happening around us or to us is ultimately opposition to God. And you can come to God recognizing God does not overlook that, right? He will hold them accountable. Even if you are frustrated by the fact that they aren't changing and it's hurting you, rest in the fact that God sees and will deal with it in his way. And you can call on him, not just for your own cause, but for the sake of his own name. But when you, when you, but can you say at the same place that when you want God to hold people accountable, that is really for his name's sake, or would you say it's for yours? That's the difference. If you say, God, strike these people down, they're causing all this trouble in my life, can you say you want things to change because it's for God's sake and his glory and his praise? Or would it be that it would make your life easier and better? A faith that loves Jesus above all else, that that really loves Christ, will entrust these things to God for his sake and his glory. And then the psalmist goes on. As he's crying out for God to show his power and to do something, the psalmist starts listing out all these names and groups of people. You you heard me read them a minute ago. I won't read them all again, but I I want to mention some. Because these were all enemies of Israel uh, over the the course of Israel's history. Verses 6 through 11, we see names like Edom, and Philistia, or the Philistines, you know, think of Goliath, Assyria, who came and, and conquered Israel and sent them out, right? And, and so all these groups of people, when we read them all together, they basically form a circle around the nation of Israel. And so the psalmist is saying, God, we're surrounded here. Like, life is hopeless. It's desperate. I don't, we don't have anywhere to turn. We are surrounded by enemies who are pressing in on us on every side. And some of us 
We can, we can feel that way, right? It doesn't have to be physical enemies, but we feel like, man, this is getting thrown at me, and this is getting thrown at me, and this is getting thrown at me, and I don't even know where to turn. Where, where do I go? What do I do? And the psalmist feels surrounded and helpless and overwhelmed and in danger of falling apart. But then he remembers the past. In verse 9, he recounts how God defeated the Midian, Midianites. And uh, you remember the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. And how God gave a victory through Deborah and Barak over Sisera and Jabin, who are mentioned in this passage in Judges 4 and 5. And then we see Oreb and Zeb, two men who were defeated in Judges chapter 7. And so the psalmist, while he's processing this, we see him processing, God, I'm surrounded on every side, yet you have already shown you have the power to overcome these enemies. He's reminding himself of the truth that he's not really as overwhelmed and hopeless as things seem in the moment. And the psalmist knows deep down and he recalls God is mighty to intervene, to preserve his people. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 15. What he calls God to do. Verse 13, make them like tumbleweed, my God. You get this picture of this dried out dead weed that's just blowing. Helpless. God, make them like that. Like straw before the wind. As fire burns forest. As a flame blazes through the mountains. So pursue them with your tempest and terrify them with your storm. The psalmist knows this is God's cause at stake. He's already proven that he will preserve his people, his people who represent him on earth. And when they face a real threat, he can take confidence that God will bring them through it in some way. And so he cries out for God to do that. And I think this is how God wants us to think about our troubles. Not that we would make our enemies tumbleweed. But we also know that our enemies aren't just physical enemies, nations surrounding us. Ephesians 6.12, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic, spiritual powers of this darkness, against evil, spiritual forces in the heavens. That is our real enemy. Your enemy is not a person who's causing you trouble. That's not your enemy. Your enemy is Satan, who wants you to believe lies through those things, those people, that you are hopeless, that you have every reason to fear, that you should be anxious, as if you have no help. That's your enemy. And the psalmist reminds us, Jesus is our sufficient help, who is sufficient for those enemies when things are coming at us from every side. If we trust in him. If we rest in him. Can you say you know that Jesus is your help like this? If you are living life your way, for your desires, and you are disregarding what God says, Turning a blind eye. Oh, I'm following God, but you're turning a blind eye to this and this. God, I know you said you should, I should do this, but I don't think it's that important. I'm going to do this over here. And I still, I'm still following you. You're living a lie. 
And you might be actually opposed to God. And know that God's help won't come until you give everything to him. And you're not willing to turn a blind eye to anything he says we should do. If you've done that, and you have laid your life at the cross and said, Jesus, I'm yours, have your way with me, and God will preserve you. He will protect you by his might and for your good and in his way for his glory. And this perspective, knowing this, makes a difference in how we think of our enemies. If, this, if evil is thought of as just being against us all the time, I can't believe this person would do this, I can't believe this happened to me, then our thoughts are all about revenge. But if evil is thought of as being against God, and we know that he is the one who is wronged, and there is spiritual, deep spiritual need here, then we can find peace knowing that we can leave that in God's hands. And we can trust him because he will do what he sees fit to do and what he knows needs to be done. And we can trust him because God is not indifferent. You know, Jesus came to this earth. Jesus Christ came to this earth and he suffered for sinners. He is not indifferent to what sinful people do. He's not, it happened, not indifferent to what happens to his blood-bought people that he shed blood for. If you are that person, he's not indifferent to where you are. Seek God's power to intervene and know that he is mighty. But also trust him to do it his way. And you have a responsibility in the meantime to make sure your view of what is happening lines up with his. That what's happening in your life, what other people are doing, what's out of your control, the way you see those things, lines up with how God wants us to see them. This is where it is hugely a grace of God to have Christian community. Because we can go to one another, I can come to you and say, am I thinking about this the right way? Is this what God, how God says I should be thinking about this, what's happening in my life? And yet we are so hesitant to ask that question, aren't we? We're afraid of what people might think. And so we try to figure it out on our own. We need one another to see life rightly. And God in his grace knows it, and he gives us the church. And so in your troubles, seek counsel from those around you who know you, who see, who can give you a godly perspective when you might be blind to something. And I need that too. So we can learn to trust God's power and plan in his way, not according to our own thoughts. So we ask for God's presence. We ask for God's power. The third thing, we have to ask for God's praise in our troubles. The final observation the psalmist makes here in Psalm 83 is handling danger. And handling danger is really the most important of all. It's the way it ends. Yes, the psalmist calls for judgment to come down, for God to, to be just in removing the enemies. But there's a purpose even in that. Look at verse 16. Cover their faces, God, with shame 
so that they will seek your name, Lord. That's the purpose. God sent your judgment not to wipe them out, so that they would seek your name and know true change and hope and life. And God, you will change everything about what is happening because they've changed, not because you remove them. He says, he continues on in verse 17, if they don't repent, yes, God, be just in your punishment. Let them be put to shame, be terrified forever. Let them perish in disgrace if they aren't willing to change. And God will do that. But again, the desire here is that these foreign nations, these people who've been causing trouble and heartache and pain for centuries, the, the, the cry of his heart, the desire is that they would come to acknowledge the Lord and what they're doing. That they would recognize that their sin is destroying themselves and the people around them. That they may come to know him one who's absolutely sovereign over all who can save and change them. Verse 18, he says it again, May they know that you alone, whose name is the Lord, are the Most High. May they know this. And so we see, although we desire deliverance and judgment, the psalmist desires deliverance and judgment, the ultimate desire is that they would come to know and obey and follow the true God. That is the overwhelming thing that is driving his heart. And this reminds us, we don't have to rush for judgment. Judgment will come. The God of the universe will do right. For us, some of us, that's a scary thing because we know we're not right with him. And so we need to recognize that and run to make things right with this God by coming to Jesus. Because that day is coming. But for those of us who do know him, we know that God will do what is right. So we don't have to rush for judgment because today is still a day of grace. Where men and women can still repent. God has delayed his judgment. So that some may turn from their sin and seek him and find him and be rescued and know him. So do you see how this thinking can completely change our thinking towards our troubles? Your thinking towards your troubles today. When our motive is for God to be honored, first and foremost, to be revealed through us, then he becomes central in our thinking. His praise is on our lips, and we want that praise to be on the lips of every person because God deserves that praise from every single living being. And that's what we live for. I want this person and this person and this person and this thing happening. I want it all to praise God. And we begin to see those around us who hurt us with new eyes. We see them not as offensive to us, but people we long to see know God. And we begin to show them kindness that they don't deserve. But we begin to demonstrate grace in a tangible way because we believe God can use us in their lives that they may know him. Now, remember back to the story at the beginning I was saying about 
and kind of my impulse. God, judge these people. Like, strike them down right now. And that was a, a common thought. Well, Psalm 83 reminds us there's some truth in that, but there's another way, a better way of thinking. John Piper was preaching at a missions conference about a month after September 11th. And I think he expressed well what we see here in Psalm 83. In his prayer before his, the message he was going to give, he prayed not that God would instantly strike down all the Muslims. He prayed that God would cause a billion Muslims to fall on their knees and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of the Father. And God is able to do that. But do we believe God is able to do that in our troubles too? So we see the balance we have to have when we come to God asking for his help in our troubles, right? We pray these prayers of imprecation and judgment for those who would persecute us, for those who would seek to cause us harm. God, be just. Intervene. Do something. But at the same time, we should long, even beyond that, that those enemies, those troubles, might become trophies of God's grace that demonstrate his power and might over all things in this world. And so ask yourself, what do you pray for when trouble comes? God, do what is right, but may all people know you. And are you living in a way that God might bring that about through you? But today, have you been feeling like God is silent in some way in your life? Not intervening in your troubles like you would like? Let's go back to the beginning of the song. And we see this, God doesn't seem to be answering, right? And I want to remind you of the greatest non-answer to that prayer in all of history. First verse of Psalm 83 says, O God, do not keep silent. Do not be quiet. O God, be not still. Well, one day, centuries after that psalm was written, the Son of God was hanging on a cross, innocent, perfect man, God in the flesh, Jesus Christ, hanging on a cross outside the city of Jerusalem. And essentially, he, he was encircled and condemned by his enemies. And in a sense, he prayed this same prayer. God, do not be silent. He said, God, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? God was silent while Jesus hung on the cross. And God did not answer. He did not intervene in his power to save Jesus from the cross, from his enemies, or to rescue him. But ultimately, God's silence was for good. That God did not answer in that moment was the best thing God could have done. Because even though he didn't answer Jesus' prayer, and Jesus, I mean, nobody prayed better prayers than Jesus, right? He's perfect. He's God. If God would have answered anybody's prayers, it would have been Jesus's. But even though God didn't, he was still working for good. God re did reveal his presence. He did reveal his power. His praise would resound from more people because of his silence. Because God's silence to Jesus' cry 
meant that salvation would come. This is the hope we have. Salvation will come. And it has already come with Jesus. And this is the confidence every follower of Jesus has in life, that God does intervene. And he changes the course of human history, sometimes by acting and speaking, but sometimes by his silence. And God hears the prayers of his people, and he sees the troubles we face, and God hears and he acts, but it's in his perfect way and not according to our limited sight. So hear this and take courage when you feel like God's silent. That he is over the, all the earth, and he, one day he will not be silent. And you will know him. And you will find rest in him forever. And in the meantime, his presence is with you to uphold you and sustain you if you walk with him. So live with confidence. Leave your troubles in God's hands and trust him to do what is right and good for you. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the hope of Psalm 83 that you do not leave us in our troubles, but you have given us a means, a way, to come to you, to call out to you, and to know that you are there. And that your, even your silence is for our good. Lord, help us to believe that. To look on you and to know you, Father, in such a way that we believe it with every fiber of our being. That even your silence is good for us. And that we might lean to you and look on you and look on your glory and be comforted by who you are and not by our circumstances. Lord, I pray that it would be the, the heartbeat of every single one of us in this room, that we would know Jesus like this. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.